Chapters sixteen and seventeen of One Life, One Love by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Sixteen French Leave Gilbert Florestan, who had not been remarkably energetic in the pursuit of any ambition or fancy of his own, could but wonder at the intensity which moved his thoughts and his actions in the pursuit of that investigation which Mrs. Arden had confided to him he could think of nothing else undertake no other occupation and when his thoughts were not fixed upon leon duverdier and his supposed sister they were on the other side of the channel haunting river lawn or a certain house in grosvenor square and following one particular girlish figure with an alarming persistence he wanted to do the thing which mrs arden had given him to do he wanted to prove how difficult a task he could accomplish in order to lessen the sorrow of her life but even if he should succeed in bringing robert hatrell's murderer to his doom and enlightening the anguish of the wife who lamented his dark fate all the more acutely because it was unavenged would this great service done for robert hatrell's widow bring him any nearer to robert hatrell's daughter alas no he told himself that young heart was given to another that young life was pledged nothing he could do would bring him any nearer to daisy he could never be more to her than he had been that sunny afternoon on the terrace by the river when the uneasy look in the lovely hazel eyes had told him that she wished him away she had always been kind and courteous to him but he was a nullity to cyril arden's future wife it may be that her woman's wit had guessed his secret and that she was nervous and uneasy at any chance tete-a-tete -tete. he had assuredly perceived something in her manner which a very vain man might have interpreted as the indication of a hidden preference a growing regard against which she struggled in duty bound to another why are mothers in such a hurry to give away their daughters future lives he asked himself not knowing that daisy had accepted her old playfellow of her own free will pledging herself almost unawares with that girlish lightness which disposes of women's lives in a breath for good or for evil he felt that his case was hopeless and yet it was something to him to be able to devote himself to mrs arden's service to feel that there were confidence and friendship between him and daisy's mother friendship which would at least give him an excuse for seeing daisy now and then and making himself a little more unhappy hopeless lovers cultivate the weed unhappiness as if it were a flower florestan had no more doubt that madame quijada's niece was antoinette morel than he had of his own identity her denial was in its mode and manner quite as good as a confession he read the report of the inquest for a third time and subsequent paragraphs describing the cashing of the bank-notes at cannes and at monte carlo and he was strongly inclined to believe that the elderly and aristocratic frenchwoman who changed the notes was no other than madame quijada true that the elderly lady's white hair was a point in the description while the spanish lady's hair was still black but it would be only natural that a woman entrusted with such a critical mission would do her utmost to hide her identity true also that the elderly lady was described as having a mole over the left eyebrow while madame quijada showed no such mark but it was by no means unlikely that the mole was an artificial disfigurement devised to divert suspicion from the lady hereafter was it the same woman who stopped robert hatrell in canborne street and who appealed to him on behalf of the dying antoinette yes florestan thought the same although the woman in cranborne street was described by colonel macdonald as middle-aged and if this were so madame quijada had been her nephew's aider and abettor in a diabolical murder would antoinette otherwise louise warn her aunt of his suspicions 
he determined to appear in the lady's salon on her next evening in order to discover if it were possible what confidences had passed between the aunt and niece his own idea of the situation was that the younger woman existed in her aunt's house only on sufferance and that there was suspicion on the one side and loathing on the other he spent only half an hour in the rue st guillaume louise was absent from the salon suffering from a neuralgic headache her aunt told him dolores looked pale and preoccupied there was no change in her mother's manner and florestan concluded that louise had told her nothing there was no other visitor and the dullness of the salon was oppressive before he left he contrived in the most casual way to ask an important question he commented in a sympathizing tone upon mademoiselle marcet's delicate appearance and weak health and then he asked abruptly how long is it since she had that serious illness of which you told me a good many years i really don't remember how many replied madame quijada carelessly oh mother you can't forget the year cried dolores who had been yawning behind her fan it was in seventy-two the year we went to madrid the year of robert hatrell's murder this answer settled two points antoinette's illness and the establishment of madame quijada at madrid had been events of the same year the horror of claude morel's crime had been the cause of his sister's brain fever the proceeds of the crime had enabled claude morel's accomplice to establish herself in the spanish capital doubtless it was to spain that the murderer had betaken himself thinking it a safer refuge than the new world his southern birth had made it easy for him to pass as a spaniard florestan felt that he was getting the threads of the tangled skein into his hands he called on the following day at the headquarters of the police de sûreté and was again admitted to the important official to whom he had confided his suspicions of duverdier i have read the story of mr hatrell's murder said this functionary after receiving him with grave politeness and i agree with you that the name of antoinette employed as a lure goes very near to fix the murder or at any rate complicity with the murder upon antoinette's brother yet you must bear in mind that there are always remote possibilities in every case and the obvious solution of a mystery is not always the right solution it is possible that mr hatrell may have talked of this youthful love affair and that the name of his sweetheart may have been known to others besides her brother no other man would have had the same malignant feeling to prompt the crime suggested florestan a crime which was to realize a gain of nearly four thousand pounds would need no prompting from sentiment or revenge how can you account for morel's precise knowledge of mr hatrell's movements was he in frequent communication with hatrell at this time i should say decidedly not but i have no absolute knowledge upon this point then in all probability he was in communication with his sister's former lover it would be only natural for a man of that kind to try and trade upon his knowledge of the past i have to remind you that mr hatrell's relations with the french girl were perfectly innocent the official who had grown grey in the experience of the worst society in paris shrugged his shoulders and expressed all the doubt which an elderly and astute visage can express will you vouch for that fact he asked yes i have it upon the evidence of the girl's own letters and from the lips of a worthy old lady in whom she confided granted then that the intrigue was an innocent entanglement mild as rose-water mr hatrell may yet have desired to keep the story from his wife and may have allowed claude morel to hang upon him and may thus have given him the opportunity to find out all about the intended visit to the bank and the sum to be handed over in the lawyer's office it must have been so 
the movements of the murderer were too precise to have been guesswork or the result of accident the murderer must have had detailed information as to mr hatwell's intended movements on that fatal day that is the most mysterious point in the story not very mysterious if claude morel were in frequent communication with mr hatwell would hatrell confide in a man who was sponging upon him a man he must have despised perhaps not but mr hatrell's servants might furnish the information servants would hardly have known the precise facts my dear sir servants know everything you english have a pernicious habit of discussing your most private affairs at the dinner-table the people who wait upon you here and remember however this is beating about the bush i have something to tell you as the result of the inquiry that has been made since you were last in this room you have discovered the identity of morel and duverdier exclaimed florestan eagerly not conclusively but we have discovered that duverdier is a man of the worst possible reputation to have escaped deportation to new caledonia we have discovered that on the strength of good looks and consummate audacity he has managed to live for the last seven years in madrid and paris of course what we know of him in spain is at present only at second hand there has been no time for any direct inquiries in madrid we cannot hear anything about him except that he was known to the spanish police as an adventurer and under suspicion of having been concerned in a great jewel robbery at madrid six years ago i have dispatched my agent to that city and he may be able to get more details on the spot in the meantime there is one fact that tells strongly against m leon duverdier and that is he has made off he has scented danger i believe and has disappeared from paris before he could be asked any inconvenient questions is that really so yes after i had read the account of the denmark street murder i had a desire to look at this duverdier whom you take for morel i was told that he occupied an apartment in the rue soufflot so i put on one of my numerous disguises in which i pay visits of this kind and in the character of a septuagenarian savant i sallied forth to call upon the experimentalist and inventor i know enough of chemistry to sustain a conversation with as shallow a scientist as i take duverdier to be however my capacity in this line was not put to the test the concierge informed me that m duverdier had left for brussels upon the previous evening and that he had no idea when he would return he had left the key of his apartment with the concierge and at my request the man went upstairs with me and allowed me to investigate the deserted rooms did you make any discoveries nothing of an incriminating nature two of the rooms are furnished with a showy vulgarity which bespeaks the tiger velvet and gilding photographs of actresses and demi-mondaines a great display of pipes foils and boxing-gloves a third and larger room is fitted roughly as a laboratory and bears indications of recent experiments i asked the concierge if m duverdier's departure had been long in contemplation and he told me that the first he had heard of the intended journey was the order for a cab to take duverdier and his portmanteau to the station he gave no date for his return but said that he should not be long absent and begged the man to look after his rooms while he was away the concierge doubted if any of the furniture had been paid for and anticipated a descent of the sheriff during the tenant's absence did you hear anything of duverdier's habits nothing to distinguish him from the common run of profligates and spurious savants late hours and importunate creditors occasional visits from mysterious women who came closely veiled and shunned observation rare intervals of seclusion and work in the laboratory 
i could see that he was not a favourite with the concierge and that if there had been anything damaging to tell about him the man would have told it he has been warned by his sister said florestan after a thoughtful silence i showed my cards too soon he told m jaluc of his interview with louise marsay yes that was a mistake although the interview may have gone far to confirm your suspicion no doubt she told her brother that you were on the scent and morel alias duverdier has disappeared for an indefinite period he would have no hesitation in leaving a city where he was deeply dipped and which he might not be allowed to leave if he lingered much longer there was no more to be said whatever ideas m jaluc had as to the possibility of any satisfactory solution of the mystery of robert hatrell's murder he did not impart them to florestan but simply took that gentleman's cheque for the expenses incurred in the inquiries and investigations that had been made at his request and said that for the rest time would show if this duverdier is as black a villain as you believe him to be or in other words if he is the denmark street murderer he will be sure to put his neck under the knife no such man stops at a single crime he is a man to be watched then said florestan yes he is a man to be watched and i believe he will prove a man worth watching seventeen daisy's diary in london it was an old fancy and one which had haunted me from the first night i slept in grosvenor square as i laid myself down to rest in the pretty little bed with its embroidered japanese coverlet and cloud of creamy lace all devised by mother so dainty and gracious and as i heard the noise of the carriage wheels like the great hoarse roar of the sea i said to myself this is london cruel london the city in which my father was lured to his death the city in which a good man may be murdered in broad daylight on a summer afternoon in the midst of his fellow-men i could not sleep that first night for thinking of my dear dead father i could not stop myself from picturing the awful scene over and over again the ghastly change in the dear face the horrid wound the pitiless murderer whose face i could not picture to myself again and again and again i tried to shape that unknown face i thought of all the villainous countenances i had seen in picture galleries of this or that judas this or that murderer the malignant face with dull red hair the swarthy face with close-cut black hair the rugged features and beetling brow the low scarcely human forehead under ragged dangled locks all of the villainous and inhuman that painters have ever conceived yet i could never picture to myself the form and face of the man who killed my father night after night i have lain awake thinking of him my father has been much more often in my thoughts since we came to london than he was while we were at peaceful river lawn where i used to lie awake to hear the nightingales in the warm june nights and where the sound of the river always soothed me like a lullaby here all the gaiety and splendour the operas and plays the music and dancing and talk and laughter are not enough to make me forget that in this city my father was murdered if there were no such wilderness as london he might be living and among us to-day he might be ours for many a year to come i think of professor palmer in the desert lured to his fate by murderous arabs was the desert worse than london i think of all who have ever been treacherously slain in wild and lonely places but i can think of no place worse than london i want to see the house in which my father died i want to see the room in which he was found lying stabbed to death 
this is the fancy that has tormented me ever since we took up our abode in london ever since the roll of the wheels and the tramp 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 of horses feet have been in my ears i feel as if i should think less of him and be less haunted by the dreadful vision of that room if i could see it in all its sordid reality if i could know exactly what it is like i have told cyril my feelings on this point but he refuses to take me to the house or even the street in which my father died he cannot understand me he cannot understand that this dreadful sensation of being haunted nightly by the vision of the deed and the room might be lessened by familiarity with the actual scene however painful the sight of that horrible place might be i have entreated him to take me there but he steadfastly refuses so i have made up my mind to go there without him mother and her husband are going to a grand dinner this evening to meet royalties cyril has gone to oxford to dine with the bullenden club i shall have the evening all to myself and i shall go to denmark street alone i suppose it is rather an awful thing for a girl of my age to go out after eight o'clock and i have never been in the streets of london by myself at any hour but i don't care to take even my good broomfield for she would most likely make as many objections as cyril and i might fail in getting inside the house i want to see i would rather depend entirely upon my own cleverness i know the number of the street i know the position of the room i know that it is a street of lodging-houses so i can very easily make believe to be in search of lodgings i shall wait till the carriage has driven off with mother and uncle ambrose and then i shall send down word to the butler that i have a headache and won't dine i shall tell broomfield that i am going to lie down for an hour or two upon which i know the dear soul after having fussed about me with eau de cologne and salvolatile and arranged my pillows and reading-lamp will go down to the servants hall at the very bottom of the house and will be absorbed in gossip till my bell rings i know where uncle ambrose leaves the latch-key which he always uses when he comes in from a walk so i can let myself in as quietly as i let myself out our hall and staircase when the heads of the family are out might for silence and solitude as well be in the sepulchre of one of the pharaohs i shall put on my very plainest cloth gown and a shabby little garden hat so as to look like a work-girl or anything common or insignificant i have seen that dreadful room a commonplace ill-furnished room in a shabby lodging-house and the sight of it will haunt me to my dying day cyril was right and i was wrong it was a senseless thing to do and i ought to have left it undone everything happened as i hoped the pretended headache did me good service i was mistress of my time and actions before nine o'clock i slipped off my tea-gown and dressed myself for the character of a young woman in search of a respectable lodging at seven shillings a week i suppose that is about the price work-girls pay the evening was grey and dull not dark but thick and heavy with an oppressive feeling in the atmosphere of a stored-up heat and dust such a different atmosphere from the cool dewy air in the garden at lamford on a midsummer night i had studied the map of london and had carefully made out my way to denmark street but seeing a benevolent-looking old cabman with a red nose creeping along close to the curb in grosvenor street i hailed him and told him to drive me to st giles church so i will my dear and i wish i was going to drive you there to be spliced he said which shows how thoroughly common i must have looked in my garden hat or it might be that the old man had been drinking for he rattled the cab over the stones and zigzagged across the road in a really dreadful manner if i had not been full of other thoughts i believe i should have feared for my life 
especially when he took me round corners he drew up in front of a church in a shabby-looking street where there were shops still open though it was after nine o'clock i gave him half a crown which he did not seem to think enough do you want me to wait for you miss he asked you won't get another cab in this neighbourhood i said no for i was shaken dreadfully by that one ride and i felt it would be tempting providence to let the red-nosed cabman drive me again my heart was beating so violently that i hardly knew what i was doing but i began telling myself to be calm and collected and to remember that i was there in opposition to cyril's advice and that i must prove worthy of my own self-confidence i am not a fainting young person indeed i never fainted in my life but last night i was afraid that i was going to faint and i had to struggle against the swimming in my head and a painful sense of lightness which made me totter a little as i turned into denmark street it was very quiet there the street had a sober old-fashioned air which would have given me confidence if i had really been a hard-working young woman in search of a lodging some of the houses looked the picture of neatness others were shabby and squalid against every door i observed a row of brass bells which showed that there were several tenants in each house i saw the number i was in search of from the opposite side of the way there was the tailor's workshop which i had read about in the newspaper the windows were wide open and half a dozen men were at work in a glare of gas i could not help thinking they looked like lost souls in pandemonium the bare dusty room the glare and heat on this summer night when the stars were shining on all the flowery creeks and willowy islands near lamford when life and the world were so lovely for some people yes that was the tailor's workshop and it might have been one of those men who heard my father's murderer go singing down the stairs fresh from his deed of blood i think the idea of that and the horror of it braced my nerves for i felt less like fainting as i crossed the road and knocked at the door of the fatal house i waited for some minutes before any one came to the door though i knocked a second time then a woman appeared an elderly woman who looked at me curiously i told her i wanted a lodging a respectable room at seven shillings a week but she answered rather sharply that she only let lodgings to men why prefer men i wonder and she was going to shut the door in my face when i grew desperate and stopped her by laying my hand upon her arm there was a murder eight years ago in this house i said let me see the room where it was done and i'll give you seven shillings i would as soon have offered her a sovereign but i had got the sum of seven shillings in my mind in connection with the rent of a lodging and i offered her that amount unthinkingly it was enough however for she snapped at my offer come in she said looking at me very hard and very suspiciously all the time that's a curious fancy of yours you haven't anything to do with the murderer i hope no 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 i cried i'm glad of that said she ah he was a devil that man a smooth-faced smooth-tongued devil the sight of him and the sound of his voice makes me sick and faint whenever i call him to mind he put a blight upon me and on my house i've never been the same woman since i asked her what the man was like finding that she was willing to talk and she described his appearance in a great many words but her words did not conjure up any distinct image he was good-looking and he was young she did not take him for much over thirty he was dark with fine black eyes and he wore a moustache but no beard he talked english but he spoke like a foreigner this was all i could gather from her 
she went slowly up the stairs before me with a paraffin lamp in her hand and she flung open the door of the back room on the second floor and told me to go in holding up the lamp on a level with her head so that i might see the room i've kept it just as it was that day she said i've never had a good let in all the eight years not a permanency there's a blight upon the room but people come and look at it as it might be you and give me a trifle oh how horrid of people i said forgetting myself how can they be so morbid not more so than you miss it's human nature she answered i looked at the room a square common-looking room with very shabby furniture and a single window looking out upon roofs and chimney-stacks all looked dark and dreary the light of the flaring lamp only made the squalid furniture seem more squalid oh what a scene to meet those dying eyes what horror in that one agonizing moment to feel himself caught like a snared bird trapped in such a hole as this how did he look where did you find him lying i asked and then she described that ghastly sight showing me the spot where our dear one lay gloating over every detail i could have shrieked with agony as i listened to her she had put down her lamp on the table and she clawed my wrist with her skinny fingers as she pointed with the other hand to the floor and she acted over all the scene as it might be here as it might be there and she dwelt upon the look of the dead face when they lifted him from the floor and laid him on that wretched bed until my heart seemed to turn to stone i could not speak i just let her go on i had so wanted to know all all that the commonest lips could tell all from any source however cruel i let her talk on to her heart's content like a ghoul as she was and then i went with her downstairs somehow quite numbed and cold as if i had been in a nightmare dream and i went out into the dark street i made up my mind to walk home i felt the air and exercise would give me my only chance of getting calm after the agony of that quarter of an hour i walked on blindly for some distance first in one street and then in another going out of my way i believe yet vaguely making for the west i had lost all sense of time and when i heard a church clock strike and counted the strokes i was surprised to find that it was only ten it was almost immediately after this that i came into a long shabby-looking street which looked so empty and desolate that i felt as much alone in it as if i had been walking in one of our berkshire lanes there was only one lighted spot in the street and that looked like an hotel or a restaurant it was a restaurant and as i got nearer on the opposite side of the street i saw the name restaurant du pavillon i was walking slowly meaning to ask the first policeman i met to put me in the right way to grosvenor square and not caring ever if i went out of my way for the cool air and the movement were helping me to recover my calmness when three men came pouring out of a lighted doorway talking and laughing in a boisterous kind of way that made me think they were tipsy one of them saw me and called out something to his friends in french to which the others replied in the same language but i could not understand a word they said i hurried my steps and tried to get out of their reach but the man who had spoken first came across the road and began to talk to me in english this time asking me where i was going and whether i would go to a music-hall with him and his friends i cannot record the horrid tone and manner of the man i hate to remember his vulgar insolence 
i hate to think that there are such men in the world and that poor hard-working girls such as i was supposed to be are exposed to the insolence of such creatures and have such hateful words forced upon their ears as they go quietly home from their work the wretch caught hold of my arm and urged me to go with him to some place which he called the oxford while his friends who spoke only in french laughed boisterously and talked of my affected prudery i was furious i shook myself free from the wretch's touch and i looked up and down the street in despair for some one who would help me how dare you speak to me or touch me you odious creature i cried and then he took off his hat in mocking acknowledgment of an imaginary compliment i saw in the light of the lamp close above us that he had an olive complexion like an italian's and black eyes and i remembered with a shudder the woman's description half an hour before there must be thousands of such men among the exiles who come to london for refuge yet i shall never see such a face without recalling the unknown image of my father's murderer he pretended to think that my anger was only assumed and went on with his hateful compliments and offers of supper and champagne at the oxford and i saw in my despair that there was not a mortal in sight to whom i could appeal for protection the door of the restaurant stood open and i could see lights and servants moving about inside i had half a mind to rush across the street and go in at the open door where no doubt someone would have taken my part against these horrid men but my courage failed me in the next instant it would have been such a wild thing to do and how could i have faced half a dozen astonished waiters in the glare of that gaslit vestibule i looked down the street again and this time there was a promise of rescue in the shape of a hansom cab coming along rapidly with two great flaming lamps like a dragon with fiery eyes the good dragon that comes to rescue forlorn damsels not to eat them i ran into the road and hailed the driver without stopping to see if the cab were empty while i waved my hand in frantic appeal how ashamed of myself i feel to-day when i have to write about it in this cold-blooded journal somebody inside the cab dashed his stick up through the little trap-door in the roof just as frantically the driver pulled up sharp and a big middle-aged man got out of the cab and came to me how thankful i was that he was so big and so middle-aged i felt the utmost confidence in him almost as if he had been my uncle is there anything the matter he asked looking at my persecutors yes i answered one of these men has been horridly rude to me they have all been rude but that one i pointed to my worst tormentor has been the most offensive he will not be offensive any more unless he wants to be thoroughly well kicked said my friend and he looked as if he would like to do it please don't take any trouble about him i said he is tipsy i believe and he is really not worth kicking he wouldn't know anything about it afterwards so it would be wasted trouble if you would oblige me so far as to give me your cab you would be able to get another one very soon i suppose i should be deeply grateful i had seen that he was not in evening dress or i should have hardly ventured to make such a selfish request my cab is quite at your service where shall i tell the man to drive you to grosvenor square my name is hatrell miss hatrell i repeated the name very distinctly for i wanted my unknown friend to understand that i was not ashamed of myself although he found me in such a disagreeable position two of my assailants had sneaked off already with a laugh and an air of being quite at their ease but my chief tormentor stood as if he were glued to the pavement staring at me in a dull and stupid way while i got into the cab and shook hands gratefully with my nameless friend 
he had been noisy enough a few minutes before when he was doubtless in the loquacious stage of intoxication but now he seemed to have passed into a silent and stony stage which was like absolute stupefaction one of his friends turned to look after him when they had gone some little way ahead hola du verdier veux-tu te planter là toute la nuit he called out so my tormentor's name is du verdier i stopped the cabman at the corner of the square paid him to his perfect satisfaction for i just emptied the silver in my portemonnaie into his hand and walked quietly to our own door where i let myself in like a thief in the night End of chapter 16 and 17